Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle. Welcome to Bizzlecast, episode four. We made it all the way to four, and we're going to keep going as long as we can go. I've tried with each Bizzlecast to change it up. Talked about mega movie properties and excessive consumerism in the first. Talked about the notion of simulations based on theories of the French post-structuralist philosopher Jean Baudrillard, but moving well beyond it to talk about all of the mechanisms and infrastructures that essentially lie between us and the real world, or the real world as we would like to see it or know it. Today, we're going to go into a topic that I have teased really from before Bizzlecast. Um, back to Cast when I was talking about Star Wars and philosophy and religion and political themes and stuff like that. Which is Taoism. And Taoism is spelled with a D. It's kind of a confusing thing because when people look it up, they spell Tao or Taoism with a T. But what has happened in the academic study of Taoism, like so many other subjects that are kind of tortured and tormented by overly analytical academic study, is that an entire code for how to spell the words of Chinese philosophy actually became a thing. Even has a name, the Wade-Giles system. And like so many important academic subjects, which are really kind of kept from the public, um, either openly or not as openly, with things as insignificant as spelling. People call it Taoism. It is Taoism, with a D as in dog. That's how it's pronounced. And I was lucky enough to study uh, Taoism and Chinese philosophy as an undergraduate at my college, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, with some very progressive academics and philosophers when it came to Chinese philosophy. One in particular Stephen Engel. I really want to give a shout out because his Chinese philosophy classes inspired me to do my entire Taoism project. And essentially, I decided for no real other reason, because it was worth the same amount of credits as everything else, to do a Taoism tutorial that would result in what they call a senior essay. And essentially, a senior essay is a mini thesis. It just has fewer papers, and you spend one semester on it instead of two. But from what I was studying and how I was approaching it, I really didn't think a full thesis was necessary. And I'm glad that I threw myself into it for a semester, and now I've been able to reflect back on it. Studying Taoism is somewhat similar to watching The Big Lebowski over and over and over again, which God knows I have and many of my close friends have. Because in both cases, you are presented with a narrative 
that on the surface seems completely nonsensical and irrational, but the further you delve into it, you realize that the level of rationalism or just simplicity and practicality is so deep that it masquerades as irrationality. But you come to realize that the irrationality is really from our society, as an irrational society. It doesn't judge the world in a rational way. There are so many other motives and reasons behind both our judgments and our actions. You realize that you need to take a different approach. In terms of the Big Lebowski, I don't know if I'd call Taoism trippy. Um, it kind of depends on your definition of trippy. Um, my college friends and I would label it heady, and we have a pretty um, specific but wide-ranging definition of what heady means. But it's basically a combination of being super intelligent and super trippy at the same time. The whole notion of trippy, of course, comes from LSD users in the 60s when it was still experimental. They were having visions of reality that were, let us say, quite different from sort of the everyday experiences of reality. Some are probably more exaggerated than others, but the bottom line was people were taking these drugs for the same reason people smoke pot today, which is to remove yourself from the daily grind and maybe get a slightly different view or sometimes a radically different view of what reality really is and is about. I had studied Islamic Sufism as a sophomore and I'd never really been exposed to like mystical ideas before mysticism. I am Jewish as I've mentioned before, and there's some in Judaism that's kind of inherent. Uh, there's a very strong mystical element to Judaism, but to study it academically like that uh, with an amazing professor who was actually a history professor, and this was just sort of a personal project of his, a personal love that he wanted to teach. His name is Bruce Masters. And what really struck me at the time, and in some ways didn't realize until later, was that Islamic mysticism had less to do with Islam than it had to do with so many other concepts about what they call fana or self-annihilation, which is basically giving yourself up spiritually, fully to God or the cosmic spirit or whatever you want to call it. It drew from the Quran in Islamic writings to the extent that it helped make its point. But by reading some of the great philosophers and poets of Sufism, Sufism, I think, stands above the rest of major religions in terms of mysticism because of its poetry. To get the central ideas of Sufism, you need to read the poetry as well as the more standard philosophical works. And in fact, if you're really open to poetry, which I've really struggled to be in my life, I'm always trying to be more open to poetry and 
create a more accessible situation where it can penetrate into my mind and my brain. But when you read Sufi poetry, or really any mystical poetry, you realize what's at stake with poems. It's not just people who can't write books or don't want to write books. And it's not just an art form. It is a spiritual experience that comes from the writer and that transfers to the reader in a sort of shared spiritual existential experience. What is so fascinating about Taoism is that while it has major philosophical works that have different perspectives, that interpret things in different ways, and that are associated with different religious aspects of Taoism, which I will, from the start, disqualify myself from. I have studied Taoist religious groups. It's very interesting from an ethnographic perspective, but I'm going to be dealing with Taoism philosophically at the core. And there are a lot of works, as I said, but it's undisputed that the Bible, so to speak, of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, I think, or at least I hope, that many of you have come across this before because it's such a transcendent work. It can be in the literature section, it can be in the religion section, it can even be in the self-help section, depending on the translation. I would consider it, in some ways, a self-help book in the best sense of the term. And there's been so many translations, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And it used to be that the debate was over how to translate it as literally as possible. Now, it's essentially become common property. It's in the creative commons and has become a platform for various poets and writers and a few wannabes to make their mark on quote-unquote Eastern philosophy. When I started my Taoism tutorial with Dr. Stephen Engel, Professor Engel, he made it very clear which translations we were going to use. And I don't want to go on too much farther about translations, but needless to say, there are what I would call philosophical translations, and there are poetical translations, if you will. I love the word poetical. I honestly don't know if that's a real word. I know they use it in Firefly, and so I go by Firefly. You're going to have to take that one up with Joss Whedon. But what was great about Professor Engel is he didn't just assign me the most literal or trying to be literal translations. He assigned me some very challenging ones that more modern interpretive qualities to them. And it was to these translations that I was mostly drawn. I loved the economical use of words and phrases in some of the more literal translations. But it didn't really communicate the central message, and they weren't trying to communicate it, but some translations do. One of them is by a pair of philosophers slash literature professors, Roger Ames and David Hall. They actively attempted to translate the Tao Te Ching 
not based on literal translation, but based on the meanings of the words and the power behind them and the ideas behind them. And for me, this is always the best translation. I do not want the literal translation because literal translations, it doesn't communicate the ideas behind it, especially with poetry. And the Tao Te Ching is 81 short poems. That's it. That's the Bible of Taoism. There are many later works, and I might talk about them, but the Bible of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, is 81 short poems, some of which are a page to a page and a half, and many of which are 4 to 8 to 12 sentences long. One of the central concepts to Taoism is what's called Wu Wei, W-U-W-E-I, Wu Wei. Wu Wei in earlier translations, and even some modern translations, is translated as non-action or no action, absence of action, which has led some modern commentators who aren't really familiar with the works to accuse Taoism of basically telling people to do nothing, and that's the philosophy. And if you ever watch The Big Lebowski, uh, then you know that this sort of argument has multiple sides to it. The dude is kind of a Taoist sage, although not in the way that people probably think. There's another major concept in Taoism called Ziran, or naturalness, and the relationship between Wu Wei, non-action, or as we will see, non-dualistic action, and Ziran, which is the sort of natural flow of the cosmos, is really the central key in decoding what is otherwise a somewhat obscure and esoteric and even arcane set of poems on first glance when you read the Tao Te Ching, which is why so many people don't end up reading it, and yet the people who read it because of all the translations, don't really necessarily get the full meaning. Again, I was extremely fortunate to be in an academic situation where I was at least able to perceive or just get a taste of the full meaning of a philosophy that has become a religion over thousands of years, but in some ways is the most philosophical of all major world religions. It's hard to really go into the specifics of Wu Wei from a historical perspective. You've either come across it or not. And it's a concept in Confucianism and Chinese Buddhism and a lot of different philosophies in China. It's not really clear where it came from, but Wu Wei became a central tenet of Taoism and now is inextricably linked with it. And to just boil it down right from the beginning, my essential sort of finding or experience in studying Wu Wei and Taoism in general is that Wu Wei does not mean no action, non-action, a lack of action or movement. It really means non-dual action in the sense of the dissolution of our ingrained concepts of self and other, which is the core of the artificial binary concepts that we discussed in the last Bizzlecast, Bizzlecast episode 3, binary opposition. 
how it informs human minds, but does not directly correlate to real reality. And that this realization is the most important step that one can take in truly understanding, or at least beginning to understand, the Tao. If you listen to earlier Bizzlecast, especially Bizzlecast 2, where I talk about Jean Baudrillard's notion of multiple simulations covering our lives and a lot of other issues dealing with our relation both to reality and to nature, which are essentially two sides of the same coin, but because of how we view our lives, we separate. Earlier I mentioned the philosopher slash writer slash scholars Roger Ames and David Hall. And I'm going to draw heavily on their translation of the Tao Te Ching, which they openly call a philosophical translation, and which you can get on Amazon. It's a beautiful book, beautifully put together paperback with just a highly stimulating opening section where they basically go through their entire philosophical and translational approach and just sets you up for reading it so that when you get to the 81 chapters, the 81 poems, you are ready to go and you know exactly where they're coming from. But really their interpretation of Wu-Wei and Taoism in general from a living perspective is that one should aim to live one's life with an absence of any type of action that interferes with one's field of influence, meaning one should act in such a way as to not interfere with other people without compromising one's own goals and identity. In philosophy, we talk about agency and agents. We are all agents, and we all, in theory, have the possibility of agency. And really what we're saying is that people can make choices, and those choices affect both themselves and all the people around them. We can look at agency as the Western notion of the self, an individual who both physically and metaphysically, at least according to Western philosophy, is separated in all ways from other individuals. They can be tied together by fellowship or by working at the same job, being friends, being married, but they are essentially individualized identities to a radical degree. And this is what defines the extreme individualism of the Western world in the 21st century is that very notion. We are all alone. You often hear as a cliche in movies, you always die alone. People always die alone. You always die alone. But that's really a state of mind and one of many states of mind that Taoism takes issue with, to say the least. So as an agent, as an individual acting with their own consciousness, it's important that we recognize and have respect for the existence of other agents. Basically the golden rule. Have respect for other people, and really all ethics and morals come naturally if you just acknowledge that basic point, not just acknowledge it, but internalize it. If you have respect for other people and it's true respect and it's real and it's authentic, 
then every other ethic or moral that you need to deal with will come naturally out of that. The problem is, and this has been the openly stated theme of the Bizzlecast, is in order to respect others, we must respect ourselves. But in order to respect ourselves, we need to look in the mirror and get rid of all the shit between us and a natural experience of reality. So we can claim that we do not want to interfere in others' lives, but none of that matters unless we dissipate the fog of our desires that keep us from experiencing the world as it is in itself. You don't have to be desireless. You certainly don't have to be desireless in the sort of orthodox Buddhist notion of being desireless. But you have to be aware of your desires to a level where you can put them aside when it's time to take account of what's really going on in the world. And more specifically, what is going on with other people and trying to understand other people. Taoism is often grouped together with mysticism because of the idea of illuminating the self. And the Sufism class, which I mentioned earlier, which is Islamic mysticism, had a lot of ideas and sort of theoretical structures that did help me initially sort of get into the Taoist mindset. But in Taoism, the self, like all concepts, is a tool to understanding reality. So all things are relative and all things have their purpose. But Taoism does think that we need to vastly expand our understanding of self in a productive way. The first step in doing so is to not separate the actor from the action. And you as an actor cannot be separated from your actions. In a lot of Western metaphysics, because it creates so many barriers between the self or the mind and reality, and Kant, for example, he has a multi-tiered structure that goes from, in backwards order, reality to sensation to perception to understanding, and therefore action occurs somewhere between the self and reality with numerous barriers in between rather than being a smooth continuum between the two. Since actions are almost always directly or indirectly leveled against other people, being able to realize the lack of separation between action and actor also helps dissolve the barrier between the actor and the person upon whom the action is taken. One of the keys to Taoism is it is cyclical, like many so-called Eastern religions, but it's not cyclical in the sort of traditional Hindu sense, for example, of in an allotted amount of time where certain things happen and then everything is destroyed and is recreated and it all happens again over and over and over. 
an unlimited number of cycles. Taoism takes more of what today would be considered a scientific view of just sort of the natural breath of the universe, inhaling in and out, and nothing dies permanently. All things are recreated, recycled, in such a way that is almost obvious to us now with modern science, if you just look at the basic law of conservation, that energy is never created or destroyed. It just takes different forms. And the Taoists were onto this sort of intuitively so long ago. It's amazing that they could have realized something as complex as laws of conservation or the laws of thermodynamics that we take for granted today. And the Taoist notion of naturalness, or ziran, simply acknowledges that in order for the cosmos to be as complex as we think it is, then from the perspective of a human being, it is uncoerced, or somewhat more simply, uncaused. Even if it has an origin or a cause, it is so far beyond us that it is essentially uncaused. There is no cause to it or a cause that a human can relate to. Trying to assign a linearity to the universe the way the human life is linear is just anthropomorphic and really doesn't acknowledge the great mystery of the universe. And you really don't have to be religious to acknowledge that there is great mystery to the universe. And any theological notion or scientific notion to the contrary that we can ever understand this is very foolish. And Taoism is quite clear in my interpretation that even if we could understand it, we are working against our own interests and understanding our own lives. In our society, we get very hung up on the wise. And philosophically minded people like you and I, why seems like the important question. But Taoism really de-stresses the notion of why. It basically surrenders the possibility of even understanding the why. And furthermore, it's not really important to our lives. Because if you just take the philosophical method, and as I've talked about, examine the premises, everything comes back to why. But what happens is when you're looking cosmologically at the universe, you look for what they call a first cause or a primary causer, as in God. But since we've already talked about the nonlinearity of the universe, more cyclical nature, those whys simply do not exist. In the Zhuangzi, which is sort of the second major work of Taoism, and is named after the so-called author in the same way that the Tao Te Ching is attributed to a possibly mythical figure named Laozi. In fact, some translations of the Tao Te Ching call it the Laozi because the person and the work are so inextricable. And if you just read the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi, 
you get a full or at least comprehensive picture of what's going on. Not only because there are two works that are important, but because the Zhuangzi is a long book of Taoist tales and fables and breathes life and color in a sense of dynamism to not only Taoist philosophy, but just the Taoist way of looking at the world in a way that the Tao Te Ching, while economical in its exquisite but Spartan poetry, just does not attempt to take on. Actually, you know, people find out of it. it's a Taoism, or they want to get into Taoism, and they want to know something to read. I usually don't send them to the Tao Jing. I send them to the Zhuangzi, because they're in fable form that is more relatable as a Westerner, whether it be the Greek tales, or Aesop's fables, or fables from our more recent past, fairy tales. It's in that genre. And the stories that it tells, many are in the form of what Buddhists would call koans, or paradoxical stories or scenarios. And yet with the Zhuangzi, it doesn't really hold your ass to the fire to figure out these, you know, sort of paradoxical puzzles. It just sort of flows as a work of stories, and the meaning becomes apparent as you go along. But anyways, in the Zhuangzi, they say, All under heaven are drawn into life, but do not know why they are alive. And all are alike in attaining their ends without knowing why. Though we may know destiny, we cannot perceive its antecedents. And really what they're saying in kind of beautiful poetical language is that we can attain goals in our lives. We can follow our dreams. We can even achieve some sort of destiny or at least perceive that there's a destiny in our lives. But don't get hung up on why. Knowing why is the ultimate power in the universe, but it's also the ultimate chains. And if you get chained down and trying to figure out the reasons why, in terms of the antecedents, as I call them, or the first causes, you're just going to stop yourself from achieving your potential. Now, just to step back here, in, in an attempt not to confuse people who may have listened to Bizzlecast episode 2, where later in the podcast I talked about my love for Socrates and how he had a very basic philosophy, if any philosophy at all, that pretty much came down to asking why about everything. But I want to make the distinction here between the two different kinds of whys. Good kinds of whys, or the productive kinds that Socrates uses, is to challenge basic assumptions that we inherit biologically, societally, politically, philosophically. It's not that Socrates wants the answer. Um, and if you read the Platonic dialogues closely, it, it's pretty clear that he really doesn't care about the answer. He cares about getting people to think critically. So in the Taoists, in my interpretation of them, talk about not putting too much stake in the why. They're not saying don't be critical and don't think critically. What they are saying in a way that 
really critiques Western religion, even though they had no contact when this was going on, is that we should not worry about the wise with a uppercase W, the so-called metaphysical wise, or the first cause, as we talked about earlier, that Western theologians and philosophers have been obsessed with for the last couple thousand years, especially in Christianity. So we do want to ask the lowercase w, why, at all times, every day, question our assumptions and question other people's assumptions, we should not get hung up on or even really be interested in an uppercase W-Y that's metaphysical and according to the Taoists, in my personal philosophy as well as influenced by the Taoists, that even if that uppercase W-Y metaphysical Y existed, we'd never be able to touch it. The importance of seeing yourself in a continuum with all other people cannot be stressed enough. You know, I've talked about Socrates establishing that the first step to knowledge and the bedrock of wisdom is acknowledging that you don't know anything. From a Taoist perspective, the opposite of that is thinking that whatever you do, whatever actions you take, are purely your actions without acknowledging the greater environment that you live in, both human and not human. And so a true experience is really only achieved through a kind of mental collaboration with everything else going on in the world. It might not be a direct collaboration, it might not be immediately apparent, but to deny that others do not contribute to this collaboration or to your individual actions is pure folly and just a lack of understanding the ecological connection between all people on this planet. And this is where I can finally bring back in the notion of Wu Wei, which literally is translated as non-action, but which deeper interpretations and understandings have made clear that there's a lot more going on in this concept. And one of the main sort of alternative translations that I really like is the notion of non-dualistic action. And this is basically what I just described, which is not to ascribe all of your actions and even your thoughts to yourself in a sense of radical individualism. So, non-dual action acknowledges, firstly, that there is not really a difference between the actor and the actions, but non-dualistic action also acknowledges, through the cosmological concept of ziran, or naturalness, we talked about earlier, that there's no true meaningful separation between actors or between the actions of different actors. In Taoism, the notion is that there is an inherent unity or non-duality in the cosmos that is logically prior to the perceived individuality of things because we can imagine a singularity or a singular thing without needing to imagine a multiplicity of individual things, but it's impossible to imagine a multiplicity 
without a notion of a singularity because it's a group of singularities that make up the multiplicity, but not necessarily the other way around. But like all things, logic is conditional and therefore a tool, not something with definitive metaphysical value. So when we talk about the one, it may also be literally prior to the many and the perceived individuality to which we assign the many. But as we talked about before, Taoists steer clear of any sort of first causes. And so it would make sense, especially looking ecologically at the way the universe works, and certainly the Taoists saw this, it makes sense that the one came before the many. For instance, in the Big Bang scenario, where, in theory at least, we had a literal singularity that exploded and became a multiplicity. The Taoists are self-critical enough and self-aware that they're not willing to make this assumption in a literal sense. But like with all Taoist writings, are simply a tool to both simplify the universe while at the same time expanding, or what I like to call productively complicating, the way in which we look at that universe. And just to quickly circle back to Bizzlecast 2, um, after some of this pretty heavy philosophical talk, the idea is it's not that there are no truths. It's not that there is no knowledge. It's just that truth and knowledge are conditional upon time and space and in nearly infinite number of conditions that are occurring simultaneously in our universe. You can call it the butterfly effect, you can call it chaos theory, but this is really the core of the Taoist cosmology. Many would argue that the Taoists don't have a cosmology, or in other words, the very notion of a cosmology, being a scientific concept, doesn't exist in Taoism as a definitive thing. It is conditional, like all other things, useful as a tool, but needs to be critically examined and not laden with any sort of unbreakable metaphysical truth. Ames and Hall, the translators of the translation of the Tao Te Ching that I like so much, the philosophical translation, they actually refer to the Taoist cosmology as an a-cosmology just the word cosmology with an A in front. Not an anti-cosmology. It's not against cosmology. It's not really making a definitive statement one way or the other. And with the term A-cosmology, you acknowledge that there's these cosmological elements to it from a philosophical level, but it's not pushing forward any sort of truth with a capital T as we talked about in the Taoists' denial of first causes, or at least lack of interest in talking about first or primary causes. And yet, at the same time, looking back on the concept of Ziran, or naturalness, the meaning and value of Ziran has been debated for thousands of years in the same way that Wu Wei has. In fact, it might even be more controversial because Wu Wei is at least referring specifically to human actions and human activities, while Ziran is a concept that seems to govern everything, including Wu Wei, but also including 
so many other things in the universe, human and not human. Just like with all translations, and as we talked about with Wu Wei, translating a word, especially a single word, is extremely difficult in these sort of lofty philosophical concepts, and naturalness is one of the more common translations of Xeron, which is part of the reason I use it. The other reason I use it, though, is because it allows for a pretty complex discussion, if you want to have one, of what natural means. And I spent a lot of time on my Taoism paper connecting Taoist philosophy and ethics and cosmologies with notion of environmentalism and our ecological connection with nature. As we see so much in Taoism, which makes it both infinitely interesting, but at the same time can be very frustrating, the term Ziran and the idea or ideas behind it are apparently contradictory, and they also have sort of an internal binary. And as I've talked about a lot in previous podcasts, in this podcast, the Taoists were very concerned about exploding binaries or pulling them apart. And yet they were also smart enough to know that binaries could be very useful tools or instruments philosophically when trying to understand the world. And that if you went into the examination of a binary understanding fully that it's a conditional binary and exists in a self-contained universe of the concept that does say some things that are true and real about our universe, but that is conditional and that is not fully quote-unquote true with a capital T in the Christian metaphysical sense of truth. During my discussion of Wu Wei, I talked about how superficial readings or simplistic readings of Wu Wei were translated as non-action, but the problem wasn't just with the translation, but the implications that people believed came out of the term non-action, and that in reality, it's really the opposite of what it sounds like. It is not doing nothing. It's actually maximizing your potential but just doing it in a way that does not interfere with others or interfere with yourself, to be in accordance with the Tao. And the Tao, or Tao, is what Taoism, the word, and philosophy is based on, obviously. It's translated usually as the way, or the path. And so the notion behind Wu Wei is to act as quote-unquote, naturally as possible. And this is where Ziran comes in, because this is the link between the individual experience and the cosmological reality. The same way Wu Wei was criticized by superficial readers of the Tao Te Ching and other Taoist writings, Ziran and the chapters of the Tao Te Ching that deal with Ziran directly or indirectly have also been, in my opinion, in the opinion of many modern scholars, vastly misinterpreted, both because the meaning is lost, but furthermore, that there are numerous meanings and 
Ziran can only be understood by embracing and understanding all these meanings. One of the criticisms of Wu Wei on the small scale and Ziran, naturalness, on the larger scale is that it seems to promote an ideal of primitivism where people are sedentary in a rural lifestyle, living an agrarian ideal instead of what we would look at as quote-unquote progressive civilization, and that this agrarian ideal is somehow the most conducive way to live in accordance with Ziran. Other than the Ames and Hall translation, the main Dao De Jing translation that Professor Engel had me use and was his personal favorite was by a guy named Robert Hendricks. One of the reasons that Professor Engel liked the Hendricks translation so much, and I really came around to this, was that he applied the intensely analytical translational methods of other literal translators, but was also open to not be so uncompromising when it came to interpretive translations. Meaning, he would interpret it literally where possible, but that he would pick his spots to be slightly less literal and slightly more metaphorical or interpretive. So back to Ziran and the agrarian ideal of staying put in a rural area as being most conducive to happiness and therefore being the most natural and therefore being the closest to the Tao, the so-called author of the Tao De Jing, Lao Tzu, who I've only mentioned briefly up to this point because it's pretty in dispute at best, if not totally discredited that this was written by one person in one time, and we don't even know if the real Lao Tzu existed, in the same way that we don't know what the real historical Jesus was like. We know that the Old Testament, or the Torah in Judaism, was written by many people over a long period of time and went through many edits and editions. And this is the case for really every major religion, and I hope I'm not offending anyone, and you know, you have to be careful about who you sort of talk to about this stuff, but after having studied philosophy and religion for four years as an undergrad and three years as a master's student, it's pretty clear that none of the great religious works, at least the original works of these major religions, were written by one person in one time. But it's human nature to want to have an author or an originator. Muhammad, Moses, Jesus, and Lao Tzu. And especially in Taoism, because the notion of the sage is so important, and we'll get to that later. It's nice to have a figure who is not only the mythical writer of the Tao Te Ching, which is the Bible of the Taoists, but that he also, in his person, represents, in a way similar to Jesus, everything that's good about humanity and everything that's right about the universe. And we know that the Tao Te Ching was definitely an oral tradition for at least hundreds of years following its quote-unquote creation. We don't know exactly 
when it was written down first. We do know there were many additions. In the last 20 or 30 years, there have been some pretty amazing archaeological discoveries, uh, especially in western China, of fragments of the Tao Te Ching that are vastly different from some earlier understandings of the work based on the oral tradition in a way that's very similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls. It both complicates the project of trying to figure out what the Tao Te Ching actually is, while at the same time clarifying missing fragments from earlier versions that we knew about. And the Henrik's translation, as I mentioned, draws from some of these sources and most of the kind of academic translations in recent years pull from these sources, but we won't go f too far into that. So to go back to Henrik's and the Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu, the Taoist sage himself, in chapter 80 of the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu writes the following, let the states be small and the people few, have the people regard death gravely and put migrating far from their minds. Though they might have boats and carriages, no one will ride them. Neighboring states might overlook one another, and the sounds of chickens and dogs might be overheard, yet the people will arrive at old age and death with no comings and goings between them. Now, on the surface, this seems like a blatantly isolationist view. We're told to put migration or movement far from our minds, that we may have the technology for boats and carriages, but no one will ride them because there's nowhere important to go. Even if we can overhear the sounds of the chickens and dogs of neighboring states or cities, we will, quote, arrive at old age and death with no comings and goings between them. This goes back to the criticism of Taoism from a sort of political slash technological standpoint. And certainly, as in all things, and the theme will continue throughout, is that Taoism is into simplicity. It's not into massive technological and political expansion for no reason. Nor is it definitively opposed to it. But like all of the Taoist chapters, there are many, many layers of meaning, and they are not to be taken purely, literally. There's not a type of literal orthodoxy to the text that some other religions have. Judaism had it up until a couple hundred years ago when many Jews around the world and specifically in Europe became fairly secular and we started to look at the Old Testament in a non-literal symbolic way. In the 19th century, with the advent of sort of progressive Protestantism in the United States, we started to see some of that analysis applied to the New Testament. The Quran is a very tricky subject when it comes to literalism, and I really don't want to go into the historical, political, and religious reasons why that is the case. There certainly are plenty of scholars who have attempted to look at the Quran historically and symbolically and metaphorically. It hasn't achieved quite the mainstream currency as other religions, certainly Judaism. 
But really the key point here, without giving you guys an entire history of all world religions, at least as far as I understand it, is that unlike in the major world religions, especially the three Western religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, as well as Hinduism, and even a lot of types of Buddhism, is that Taoism is not what we would call a prescriptive religion. It isn't prescribing thoughts and ideas and beliefs the way a doctor prescribes medication. It is a descriptive religion or philosophy. It is also an observational philosophy. Prescriptive religions or philosophy have to do with normative ideas or norms, whether they be social or ethical or moral, usually connected in a religious standpoint. And because ancient Chinese is so different grammatically and structurally from modern English, it's almost impossible with the translations to get this notion across, but the more translations you read and the more you read them, you realize that for the most part, the language is not in imperative form. In chapter 80, to jump back there, where the Taoists were talking about what the idealized Taoist life would look like from a practical level, or at least that's what it seems like on the surface and first reading. If you look closely or listen closely, even to the one translation I read, Lao Tzu, or whoever wrote the Tao Te Ching, is not saying things in a prescriptive way. They are not commands or commandments. They are not presented often in an imperative form, or at least not in the religious, theological imperative form that we of the West are used to in our holy texts. They are descriptions. They are observations. Now, they're observations with major philosophical overtones. And again, it would be easy to take chapter 80 as an isolationist, anti-progressive, backwards-looking type of ideal. You really can't judge it on its own. You really have to read all 81 chapters. But for the sake of this example, let's just go back to chapter 80. Now, I think it's pretty clear that Lao Tzu and all the sort of early Taoists would certainly find the ecological destruction of the planet distasteful, to say the least, and definitely contrary to the principles of naturalness of Ziran. But many scholars do not interpret Ziran in this sort of literal sense of the so-called back-to-nature scenario or the strict radical environmental sense. Instead, the term Ziran refers to the state of acting naturally or letting things develop by themselves. Now, it's possible that the Taoist believed that following this principle appropriately and consistently would lead to perhaps an isolationist or at least a non-technologically advanced society. The evidence from the rest of the Tao Te Ching and primary and secondary sources 
about Taoism is that they were not telling people that this was the only way to live naturally. Simply one scenario. Or at worst, the opinion was split between various Taoists, which makes total sense in Taoism because the entire philosophy slash religion is about infinite diversity. In fact, if we understand Ziran as the state of acting naturally in the sense of Wu Wei, taking action that's non-interfering, that's non-dualistic, that takes into account other people and the environment, I argue that a modern understanding of Taoism would be okay with a certain level of ecological modification and technological development and what we in the Western world might consider human progress, but it's the way in which this progress unfolds and the way in which we control it or try to control it or think that we can control it and the goals that we wish to attain, that's what's at the heart of Ziran in the sense of naturalness. It's not that we can't move forward, that we can't evolve. The Tao is all about evolution, but it's about evolving according to the Tao. One of the most common Taoist images is water always travels to the lowest point. Now we know this is because of gravity in terms of a scientific sense, but what the Taoists are saying are we should model ourselves after water. Water doesn't go from the highest point to the lowest point because it wants to. It does it because that's what it does. That is naturalness. And nothing can stop that. If there's a giant mountain in the way, it may take thousands or millions of years, but eventually that water will erode even the hardest rock and make its way down. So let's not put extra obstacles in front of us. You know, the term go with the flow is such a cliche that it's really, you know, beyond the cliche, but and when you apply it to Taoism, it really makes sense. If you consider the flow to be the Tao, then sort of do what the Tao does and don't push against it. And so Taoism is really opposed, as mentioned earlier, to a linear view of both time and space. It doesn't really have a particular political project. It's way more concerned with how we deal with ourselves and others and with our environments. And so people who look to the Tao to justify certain political, philosophical points of view, it's all subject to interpretation. Tao is just trying to get us to think better, essentially, or at least think more naturally. And what this means is there is not a teleological, inevitable unfolding of human evolution that can only go one way. Teleology, in terms of theological notions, is the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world. That there is a definitive design and purpose in the specific direction that it is moving. Whereas in Taoism, we have really a radical set of choices. And Taoism wants us to realize that we have these choices, but also to realize that some choices are not better than others, but more natural or more real. And so, while a lot of Western philosophers will argue 
Well, there's only one way for technology to unfold. There's only one way that progress can happen, and it's inevitable. The Taoists are very opposed to this kind of monolithic thinking. They really believe, in my interpretation at least, that there's infinite ways that humanity can go, and we need to just focus on doing it the right way. And if we're going to do that, then anything we want to attain is within our reach even if we do not know why exactly, as we discussed earlier, much less important than understanding itself. The challenge with Western philosophy, even modern Western philosophy, which has critiqued standard Western philosophy, is the notion that philosophy is based on theories. It's essentially a top-down form of philosophy. So you create a theory, which has any number of premises, and then you make a logical argument based on a combination of experience and your interpretation of logical chain of events or ideas. Whereas in Taoism, as well as, I should say, ancient philosophies all over the world from Australia to South America, thousands of years ago, Native Americans, we only have a basic understanding, but some of that understanding shows that their philosophies and religions were far closer to Asian philosophies than European philosophies. Now, that's not surprising because we know now pretty definitively that the entire population of North and South America in terms of the indigenous peoples and the Native North Americans and the Native South Americans, as well as the Pacific Rim, New Zealand, Australia, and the islands, all came from pretty much the same place, which was essentially Eastern Russia and or China, the eastern part of that mega continent that was closest to the land bridge, which led to North America in over hundreds or thousands of years, spread throughout. But back to Taoism, like I said, one of the things that really turned me off about Western philosophy, really starting with kind of the big wigs of what we would call modern Western philosophy, Descartes and Kant and Hegel and these sorts of people, is that they write these huge tomes, series of books, papers, they make these really, really complicated, tangled up arguments that sometimes make sense from a deductive logic standpoint. Deductive logic being sort of the scientific manifestation of philosophy where you can even replace certain arguments within a chain of logical arguments with letters, like algebra. It's basically philosophical algebra. So while the logical chains of some of these famous Western philosophical theorists have an internal logical consistency, what do I always say? Say it with me. Examine the premises. And it became clear to me that none of these philosophers had premises that weren't at least partially flawed, if not totally flawed, in very radical ways. But the greater understanding, from my perspective, was that it was impossible to have 
perfect premises. Because premises, from a Tao's perspective, don't exist. This goes back to the first cause. Any argument you make about humanity or reality, you can start at a certain place in the chain of arguments from a logical standpoint. But because of the linearity of it, it's dependent on conscious and even subconscious premises about what the world is made of and some of the major factors that hover over these premises are Christianity and science, or at least science as we understand it now, or how we perceive science operates on a theoretical level. I'd have to go back to count how many times I just said the word theory or theoretical, or some manifestation thereof. And that really says it all. Taoists were not about theories. If Western philosophy was top-down, then Taoism is clearly a bottom-up philosophy. Now, if you are any sort of social or political activist, you probably believe in one of the following two things. Either A, true change comes from the top, from national, international politics, from so-called experts in various fields, from people with great power and influence. And because they have great power and influence, they have to be the agents of change. And because they're so powerful, they can also be the agents that oppose change. The second approach you can take as a social or political activist is the bottom-up approach. And I'm not really sure what my audience is at this point, other than my friends and some of my friends of friends, but through both my personal life and professional career and a number of different professions and meeting so many friends of my friends and the amazing things they're doing, I'd like to point you to my close friend, Adam Smiley Pozwalski's best-selling book on Amazon called The Quarter Life Breakthrough, and it essentially shows how, in order to achieve both personal happiness and professional success, the bottom-up approach is the only way to go, because only then do you have true ownership over it. Also, you get a vast diversity of ideas and approaches, get a diverse group of voices who often don't agree, but can at least agree that change needs to come from the people, or at least we want to live in a world where we're not dependent on change coming from the top. And from a philosophical standpoint, Taoism is in full alignment with this notion. Now, considering the original draft of my Taoism paper was about 40 pages or so, and even the shortened version, which is about 20 pages, which I used to actually get into my master's program in the religion department of Temple University. Talk about making use of something productively. Um, and quick side note, I'm going to make the shortened version available online. And again, it's 20 pages at most, but with the way it's formatted, it's really more like eight pages of actual reading. And if you're really into it, please email me or Facebook me or whatever, and I'll send you the full one because I really had to cut out 
some really tasty stuff in order to get it down to 20. And in some ways, the longer one is more interesting to a general audience because of the nature of cutting down my paper because it was part of my application to get into an academic program, I actually have to cut out some of the more practical stuff like environmentalism and so forth. I generally, when people ask about my, you know, religious orientation or whatever, I'm culturally Jewish, but from a spiritual standpoint, I'm kind of an agnostic Jewish-Taoist hybrid. And you probably can tell by now, after almost an hour, how much I love Taoism. And not just love it, but really identify with it. It makes so much sense to me. And to go back to the comparison with Western philosophy, Taoism is harder to understand than some Western philosophy because of the paradoxes and the contradictions and the sometimes circular nature of the arguments. In my uh, critique of the Disney movie Wally e a couple podcasts ago, I accused it of using circular reasoning, where the premise and the conclusion are the same thing. And in some ways, you can accuse sort of pure philosophical Taoism of circular reasoning. The difference is when a corporation or major property uses circular reasoning, it's in order to kind of confuse you enough that it blunts your critique or blunts it enough that it can do what it wants and they can do what they want as CEOs or producers or whatever. Whereas circular reasoning in Taoism, like everything else, is a tool. It never claims logical consistency. In fact, and this is very similar to Buddhism with koans, as paradoxical parables or riddles is that The goal is to expand your mind and expand your field of experience. It's not to come to any logical conclusions the way that Kant or even Baudrillard, who I love, are attempting to create a theory-conclusion structure that really goes back to the early Christian philosophers and has influenced Western philosophy even Radical Western philosophy, like existentialism, hasn't really escaped that essential obsession with a logical argument. Taoism is not trying to do that. And so, as we sort of move into the final act here, because there's been a lot of talk about cosmology and translations and interpretations and sort of logic puzzles, if you will... I want to spend the final act talking about action. And I just talked about activism, and it's pretty clear, I think, that I am very much a proponent of bottom-up activism, and probably would be, even if I wasn't a semi-Taoist. But when I was done with that Taoism paper, and I had time to look back, it just made sense to me from the highest... loftiest intellectual level to the basest, most mundane, instinctive, intuitive level. We've done a lot of the highest, loftiest intellectual level. And to be honest, if you spend too much time there, it eventually becomes kind of anti-Taoist, or at least opposed to what the Taoists were really after, which is a bottom-up form of truth. So in this final section, I want to talk about 
action. Not in the super theoretical terms of wu-wei, non-action versus non-dualistic action, although it may come up um, because not only is it a central tenet of Taoism, but actually my Taoism paper was mostly based on wu-wei and Ziran. I entitled it Roaming Free Inside the Cage, which is a reference to the Zhuangzi and really sums up Taoist philosophy, in my opinion, because you're free and you're inside a cage, but you're not inside of a cage in a sort of nihilistic way or even a sort of scientific way that as big as the universe is, as massive and seemingly endless, there is an end to the universe physically and maybe temporally. The cage they're referring to here is a mental cage, the mental constructs that prevent us from reaching our full potential. So I entitled it Roaming Free Inside the Cage. And that has really become my personal life mantra because our lives are circumscribed by forces huge and small. And yet to tie in the existentialists here, the Western existentialist philosophers, Sartre and his fellows, we are equipped to create meaning and purpose for ourselves. And Taoism believes basically the same thing, but with the significant addendum that there is a structure in place called the Tao that can help guide us in this path to creating purpose and meaning. And although the Tao is ever-changing, the lessons that it provides will always be there in some form or another. So while our actions are circumscribed, Taoism, as previously mentioned, does believe that there is a radical set of choices available to us as agents with agency, and that some are more natural than others and will lead to greater happiness and understanding, but those choices are there. So it all comes down to the individual in the action. When we were children, one of the earliest lessons taught to us is that we cannot take back words or actions once they have been spoken or acted. And on top of that, even if it's at a very tiny level, any action engages with the world and can irrevocably alter the course of events. However minor a consequence that action might initiate, the co-relativity and codependence of all things, the oneness of the cosmos, ensure that no action is left unaccounted for. Therefore, we really have to try to act in such a way that accords with the most beneficial possible outcome of all the mutually interacting forces. And as nature and the ecology and the universe represent the perfectly efficacious natural harmony of the infinite things in the universe, it seems logical that the most beneficial possible outcome will be brought about by following or imitating this natural order. And this is to practice Wu Wei. Now, as we talked about before, Wu Wei is all over the Tao Te Ching, and certainly is all over the Zhuangzi as well. If you really look hard, 
you can find it in many, if not most, of the chapters in some form or other. But because Taoism is a living philosophy that depends so heavily on individual interpretation, the number of chapters in which Wu Wei appears is very much up for debate. But this idea of living our lives according to the natural order is really most clearly summarized in chapter 2. And as Hendricks translates chapter 2, it reads, quote, Therefore the sage dwells in non-active affairs and practices the wordless teaching. The ten thousand things arise, but he doesn't begin them. He acts on their behalf, but he doesn't make them dependent. He accomplishes his tasks, but he doesn't dwell on them. It is only because he doesn't dwell on them that they therefore do not leave him. I go back and forth between anywhere between 10 and 20 chapters being not necessarily the most profound, but the most direct and clear. And so when people don't want to read the whole thing, chapter 2 is definitely on the list. If we just look at that final line where Laozi writes, it is only because he doesn't dwell on them, meaning he doesn't dwell on his actions or tasks, it is only because he doesn't dwell on them that they therefore do not leave him. And this is a central Taoist idea of action. In line two, Laozi, or whoever the author is, refers to the 10,000 things. And the 10,000 things are an extremely common metaphor used by Chinese philosophers of all stripes and philosophies and religions. The 10,000 things are a shorthand for everything, for the infinity of all things. But since this phrase probably came about well before Taoism, perhaps going to the earliest days of Chinese civilization, you know, we take for granted these huge numbers, both talking about money, which goes into the trillions and approaching the quadrillions, but even more so in science, in astrophysics, trying to describe how insanely, unimaginably enormous the universe is. By the time Tao Te Ching was written, or at least began its sort of oral composition, I'm pretty sure the Chinese had moved well beyond five figures from a mathematical standpoint. But it was just sort of a traditional shorthand. And I kind of like it because we get so used to these huge numbers that we can't really comprehend. If you just look at human events, the amount of people who have been killed in various wars and genocides, many, many times 10,000. And so I find 10,000 to be kind of a fun little number that we can comprehend. So anyways... Second line, 10,000 things arise, but he, meaning the sage, doesn't begin them. So right there, things arise without a first cause. Pretty straightforward. The sage acts on their behalf, but he doesn't make them dependent. Meaning, the sage, or sort of the ideal human, acts on the behalf of the Tao and the 10,000 things it contains, but he doesn't make them dependent, meaning in a two-way relationship, they don't depend on him permanently, nor does he depend on them permanently, 
from both a usage standpoint, but also a meaning standpoint. Line four, the Taoist sage accomplishes his tasks, but he doesn't dwell on them. And this is a very important psychological point. And I think the way capitalism is structured, going back to the other Bizzlecast and sort of the psychological fallout that Freud and others have pointed to, the notion of success is not just that we achieve success or attain success, but that we can brag about it or at least attempt to command respect because of our accomplishments. But what happens is those accomplishments begin to define you. Talked about in the Baudrillard podcast how the relationship between representation and reality is all backwards now. Because in earlier human cultures, we use symbolism to understand reality, but that now the representations of reality are so many and so all-consuming and are often now human-created that they are defining reality instead of the other way around. So for the sage, by accomplishing his tasks, but not dwelling on them, he doesn't become a slave of his own accomplishments, which really is just humility and perspective, which are simple ideas, but very hard to come by these days in our society. The final line, chapter two, which is incredibly profound, or at least it was for me upon first reading. The line reads, it is only because he doesn't dwell on them that they therefore do not leave him. Now, in normal, logical, philosophical thinking, or even just grammar and syntax, it would seem that the them of the he doesn't dwell on them would refer to the previous line of accomplishing tasks. But with the way the Taoists operate, my theory or understanding is that them, in this context, refers to everything in the chapter before it. So not just tasks and accomplishments, but specifically the 10,000 things and the access to those 10,000 things, to use those things productively but also naturally and non-coercively. Coercion is the opposite of Tao. It's the opposite of nature. Going back to the dude in the Big Lebowski, his main problem is, well, I guess the dude has a lot of problems, from a plot standpoint at least, but his main problem in the story of the Big Lebowski is that he doesn't act coercively. He lets everyone push him around. But in the Taoist ideal, which has some similarities to the Christian notion of turning the other cheek, is that getting used and being taken advantage of sucks, at least at first, but it builds humility, it builds character, and ultimately, the ones doing the coercion at some level are very out of harmony and unhappy. And being non-coercive, while it might not result in becoming a CEO of a corporation or a quarterback in the NFL or whatever, in the end, will make your life simpler and happier and more natural. So what we see with chapter two and so many chapters, if not all the chapters of the Tao Te Ching, is that there are multiple levels of meaning. Now, 
one could certainly go on debating forever which verses, chapters, poems have more meaning than others and how many levels of meaning there are. And certainly some are more profound than others. But there's a reason there's only 81, and there's a reason that they're, for the most part, pretty short. When it comes to interpretations of meaning, I often turn, actually, to Judaism. Because according to the rabbinic tradition, especially in Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, there are at least four levels of meaning to all the texts of ancient Judaism and Kabbalah, and especially the Torah. The first level of meaning, which is called the Peshat level, is the plain sense of the text, or what the text actually says. Every word and phrase and thought has a meaning. There are no redundant words. Even if it does appear to be a redundant word, it is not. And because of how sparse and short and concise the Tao Te Ching is, there was a lot of thought that went behind every single word. This is just the surface level. The second level in the study of Torah, or Kabbalah, is called the Drash level. In the Drash level, this is where truth and principle are presented. I would call this the logical level, because these truths can only come about in the form of evidence. We might also call this the empirical level. The third level is the Remez level, which is the underlying theme or story that is being told while speaking of other things that are apparently unrelated. If we look back at chapter 80, I think that's very applicable. We're telling a story about the ideal agrarian society, but really there's a lot more going on thematically. The final level is called the Sod level, and this is the level of mystery and even a sort of code or cipher. Now in Judaism, this involves something called gematria, which is the use of numbers in mathematics to analyze the Torah. There's a belief by some that some of the more important words and phrases and sections of Torah, if you apply numerical value to the letters, leads to a deeper understanding that Kabbalists would call mystical, but essentially this is the deep mystery. It's the level that is the most difficult, but also the level with the greatest insight. Whether you use the four levels of study of Torah and Kabbalah or not, I think it's helpful to look at the ways in which we can categorize conditionally the different levels going on in the Tao Te Ching. One of the great debates in all philosophy and religion all over the world throughout history, time and space, possibly the greatest debate is the notion of free will versus determinism. Some interpretations of science seem to indicate at least what they call a weak version of determinism, where our lives are mostly circumscribed, but we may be able to make small choices within that 
circumscription. Strong determinacy is basically the denial of free will, that the entire fate of the universe, all the way down to the individual, was determined by the physics of the Big Bang, what happened to particles and energy, and if theoretically we could understand all that, we would realize that we don't really have any choices. Not only does Taoism deny determinism of any sort, it doesn't even consider it. And I think this goes back to the metaphysical dualism of Christianity and Western philosophy. And part of the reason from a philosophical level that Christianity had to, or thought it had to, establish an uppercase R reality, a transcendent reality of heaven and God, is because it seemed that our lives were so determined on earth that we needed the hope, if nothing else, that if we don't have free will, that we will at least reach a higher level after death, in which both free will and determinism become irrelevant. Taoism will have none of this, and this is really important to Taoism's notion of action, human agency, and free will. Now, as previously discussed, Taoism does acknowledge that life is circumscribed in certain ways. But because it doesn't believe in a teleology, and it does believe that we can make a wide variety of choices, free will is inherent to Taoism, even though it never talks about it in a direct or literal way. In today's world, discussion of free will is often talked about in the context of what we would call potential or human potential. But potential assumes free will, and furthermore, potential and free will are not possible without some notion of indeterminacy. And so the cosmological, or at least philosophical, notion of the indeterminacy of the Tao is the very thing that gives us free will to make choices. Roaming free inside the cage. Chapter 45 of the Tao Te Ching states, quote, Great fullness seems to be empty. Which means, in my interpretation, that the great fullness of possibility seems empty because there is nothing yet in it, nor will there ever be anything that permanently occupies its space. And thus, permanence is anathema to growth and change, and is the very emptiness of a thing that gives it the capacity for alteration and evolution. And the verse and the Tao Te Ching, that's in that 10-verse grouping or so I talked about that are both highly profound but highly relatable, and while may have a deeper meaning, has a very obvious meaning on the surface. Tao Te Ching is so good with simple yet profound metaphors. Chapter 11 of the Tao Te Ching, it says, 30 spokes unite in one hub, it is precisely where there is nothing that we find the usefulness of the wheel. We fire clay and make vessels, but it is precisely where there is no substance that we find the usefulness of clay pots. We chisel out doors and windows, but it is precisely in these empty spaces that we find the usefulness of the room. Therefore, we regard 
having something as beneficial, but having nothing as useful. This is such an obvious thought that it is completely unobvious, but when you read it a few times, it just makes perfect sense. When we make a clay pot, instinctively, as materialistic humans, we think the usefulness of the pot is the pot itself. But what does a pot do? It holds other things. And so even before you put anything in the clay pot, it's the emptiness of the pot that's useful and the potential of the usefulness of the pot and all the things we can put in the pot. We think about a house made of doors and windows and walls, but it's the empty spaces in the rooms that are truly useful. This is really an attempt to reorient our thinking. Because, as I've talked about in previous podcasts, materialism has really come to define our world and our universe. But Taoism completely goes against this by claiming that it's the emptiness or the potential of an unrealized thing that's actually the more useful. Once you make a pot or a vase or a glass, that form is locked into place, but what you can put in it is infinite in nature. And so, this is really just a mental exercise, like so much of Taoism, to reorient our perspective about what's useful in the universe. And what's useful is what's empty, what's undecided, what's indeterminate. And if we just orient our personal actions and our lives with this in mind, what we have here is really a radical level of free will. It is circumscribed the way a pot can only hold so much stuff in terms of quantity, but within that structure are an almost unlimited amount of choices. And while it may not really be true that there are unlimited choices, if we approach life that way, it creates, or I should say, recreates and reconstructs our mental structures. Some might argue it even attempts to get rid of these structures. One of the hardest concepts for Westerners to grasp, and one that I don't know could ever really be fully embraced without a radical reorientation of society, is the notion, when it comes to human action, that any action that's aimed at achieving a particularistic goal has what we call a reifying effect that can stifle creativity, but also goes against the dynamic movements of the Tao. And the reason I say this might never be embraced is that the achievement of specific goals is so central to Western society and really almost every society, if not most, one could argue that achievements of goals are a part of animals' lives and all living things. But really what's being talked about here is not that we shouldn't aim for goals, but that we should always be aware of the way in which those goals will affect us and affect other people going forward. 
in how it is formed and shaped from what came before. From a practical standpoint, the place to start is to give up the notion of self-serving goals. Doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of your family. But the short-term benefit of selfishness leads to long-term detriment of realization of our true potential. And it should be pointed out here quickly that historically Taoism is pretty well established as a major critique of ancient China during what they call the Warring States period when Confucianism had really taken over Chinese society. And in a lot of ways, in terms of the hierarchical, bureaucratic, monolithic nature of Confucianism and the way that it reifies human conduct, human thought, and human behavior. Reification is a very common term in philosophy and religion, but a lot of dictionaries don't even have it. You've got to wiki it. And part of the reason is there's so many different definitions and usages of the word. But in this context, reification, or more simply, misplaced concreteness, is when an abstraction, whether an abstract belief or a hypothetical construct, is treated as if it were concrete, real, or physical even. And this is true of Confucian society, and this is true of our modern society. In other words, it is an error of judgment, where we treat a concrete thing as something which is not concrete, but merely an idea. Another case of reification is the confusion of a model with reality, and this really goes back to Baudrillard's simulations. And while Baudrillard's simulations were written with modern Western society in mind, the notion of civilization in general and the bureaucratic hierarchical realities that are necessary for civilizations, or at least are seen as necessary, it's clear that in various forms, in various times, that simulations have been used, or at least existed, in all forms of civilization, going back to the early civilizations in the Fertile Crescent. They are necessary for civilizations to function, because civilizations are so complicated that you need simulations, or as I call it, interfaces, to make such complexity understandable and seemingly useful to a human brain that is very powerful but also very limited. And so while a simulation or even a mathematical model may help understand a system or a situation, they're modeling an abstract and simple mental image, basically, and not real life. Language itself is the source of reification, of misplaced concreteness. And in the West, we didn't really discover this until Wittgenstein in the early 1900s, who's a very underrated philosopher, partially because his works are very difficult, although short, quite complicated, partially because he didn't publish any books for the most part. It was mostly after his death that a lot of his papers and lectures were published, 
but he talked about language games and how language is essentially a type of game with internal rules, but by definition, reify or concretize reality and therefore simplify it. In some cases, or maybe many cases, distorts it. The Taoists were onto this a long time ago, and the danger of assuming that language correlates with reality is something that the Taoists tackled and that I tackled vis-a-vis researching the Taoists. And I will talk about that in a later podcast, but I thought that it was important to bring that up briefly. So to close out this podcast before it becomes five hours long, the essence of what I've talked about here through reading chapters or parts of chapters from the Tao Te Ching or Zhuangzi, my own thoughts, bringing in examples from our own reality. In essence, Taoism is trying to expand our minds. But more so, it's trying to expand our mind in an effort for us to act in ways that it calls useful, but also distinguishing between the modern sense of usefulness and the sense of utility and the Taoist sense of usefulness in assisting in the natural flow of the Tao. And it's a two-way relationship. If we help the Tao, the Tao will help us. It is a cycle of thought and behavior that, if approached and conducted in the right way, will help us maximize our full potential. And by realizing concepts like emptiness and the potential that comes with emptiness, Wu Wei, non-dual action, where we don't insist that there's some sort of metaphysical barrier between us and other people in the environment. And to just close out on a modern practical theme, if you just apply everything I've talked about, but you just replace the word Tao with nature, it's pretty clear that we cannot realize our full potential without a major reevaluation of our relationship to nature as discussed in Bizzle Cast Episode 2, when I talked about eco-philosophy and eco-religion. Taoism is essentially an ecological philosophy. I'm not going to say an environmental philosophy, because as previously discussed, there are many interpretations of what the Tao Te Ching and other Taoist texts are saying or implying when it comes to our relationships to our direct environment. But Taoism is ecological in the observation that individuals function best when the whole functions best. And it is by the realization that we function best when the whole functions best and vice versa. This is the Tao and this is Taoism. If nothing else, I hope you can take out of this that none of these arguments or philosophies or quote-unquote theories are definitive or concrete. And, you know, more than 10 years later, still rereading Taoist texts, both new to me and ones I'd read before, it's really a process. And this is what wisdom is about. And this is what 
Socrates was about, and I've made the connection between Taoism and Socrates numerous times, and I will continue to do so because in both cases, critical thinking, thinking outside the box, is what will bring truth to us. Not truth in the metaphysical sense of truth, but the truth of our being and our existence in the fabric of reality. In that the worst lies aren't lies where we tell someone something that we didn't do, but lies in the sense of distorting the fabric of reality. And the closer we get to maintaining and growing and cultivating the fabric of reality, which is the Tao, the easier and clearer our actions and our goals will become and the greater our potential will be. So that is the bizzle on Taoism for now. I'll certainly revisit this in future podcasts. Many podcasts I'll at least mention it just because this is really kind of the philosophical infrastructure of my brain at this point. And I'll also do fuller Taoism podcasts in the future. So I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear feedback from people or questions or, you know, refutations of things I said. Dialogue is always the most important thing. And let's get it going. And as I mentioned, I'll post my essay online somewhere. I'll try and post some of these translations of the Tao Te Ching, or at least a few chapters, so you can read them yourself, because listening to it once, it's really hard to get everything. You really got to read it multiple times, especially if you're a visual learner like I am. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see what happens in the next Bizzlecast, and I hope to see you at Bizzlecast 5. Bizzle